Hello and welcome to The Bunker USA. I am your host, Alex Andreu. The great enemy of truth, John F. Kennedy told Yale University students in 1962, is very often not the lie, deliberate, contrived and dishonest, but the myth, persistent, persuasive and unrealistic. We enjoy the comfort of opinion without the discomfort of thought. The comfort of opinion without the discomfort of thought might as well be the tagline for most politics right now, and none more so than the upcoming US elections this autumn. My guest today is political correspondent for NPR's Washington desk and a co-host of the indispensable NPR politics podcast. She has covered national politics and elections, although I suspect none like this one, for over 20 years. But I hasten to add she started very, very young. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome to the bunker, Susan Davis. It is a pleasure to be here. Thank you both for the acknowledgement of my youth and a shout out to the NPR <laughs> Politics Podcast. <laughs> Susan, can we start with something very basic? I am one of the people who held out some hope that something, anything would happen to change at least one of the two contestants. But it is now the middle of January. So is Trump versus Biden basically locked in? As we sit here today, almost certainly, uh, there was a brief period of time after the 2020 election following the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, where there was this moment that felt like the party was going to walk away from Donald Trump, that they were going to try to sever a tie. But frankly, with almost weeks of that event, it became clear that that was not going to happen. And all that mm. has happened since is that he has their hearts and minds. There has never been a doubt for the vast majority of Republican voters in this country that Donald Trump speaks for them, that they want him to be president. And more importantly, because this can't be lost in this election, fundamentally don't believe certain truths, that Donald Trump has done nothing wrong. So there is almost two electorates in this country that live in almost completely different universes when it comes to what's real, what's fact, what's true, and what's important. Okay, but how do you explain the complete lack of challenge to Trump from within the GOP? There are certainly no Romneys or McCains this time round. Well, there were some who tried to be. If you look at people like former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie or former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, even Nikki Haley a little bit, Mike, his own vice president, Mike Pence, you know, in the early iterations of this primary fight, people did get in to run in the, in the explicitly anti-Trump lane, and they got nothing. There was no appetite for being explicitly anti-Trump. Now, Nikki Haley tried to be critical of Trump in that he's the past, we're the future. But even that is only really a message that's resonating with maybe, you know, 20 mm. percent of the electorate, of the Republican electorate. Nikki Haley bails out. A lot of those voters are just going to vote for Donald Trump. You know, like there's an element of Republican yeah, voter yeah. that would pick someone else. But if he's the guy, he's still going to be their guy. I mean, I, w I would argue as a result of the lack of serious challenges on either side, actually, there is a complete lack of policy debate, a total lack of narrative tension. In, in the contest so far. So how does that affect voters going into the election, not having to hashed out any of the issues? Well, it's interesting because I think if you look at 2024, if it is ultimately Trump-Biden, which again, it is likely and looks like it will be, it's like two incumbents running against each other. And I think that their brands and their policies and their ideas mm -hmm. are so well established 
that in some ways right now in the race, I would describe it as a relatively low enthusiasm or low interest for the electorate. People just aren't paying that close of attention. There's not much you can tell people in this country that's going to change the way they mm. think about either man. Whoever has the RD after their name is going to win at least 44% of the vote, right? It's a battle for 5 to 8% probably in the end. And what we know about that slice of the electorate is they tend to be voters who do not engage in the primary process. They vote in general elections, but not in the candidate determining elections. They don't pay attention to politics on a day-to-day -day basis like you or I do, but they're civically minded. They feel compelled to vote. And a lot of them make up their minds in the days and weeks before the election. That is different when you have new candidates or unknown candidates because people want to find out about them. They want to hear about them. They want to know what mm, their policies mm. are. If Nikki Haley somehow rises from the ashes, I think that the interest in the race com changes completely. I think the media interest, the uh, electorate interest would go through the roof. But frankly, a lot of people are sick and tired of hearing from Joe Biden. They're sick and tired of hearing about Donald Trump. It's an election, as Nikki Haley has framed it, as the election that America doesn't really want. And there's some truth to that. I think there's some hunger mm, mm. for change, but this is the election that people have. Um, it's also a highly consequential election. This is not a low stakes election. We're just right at this moment. It's it's sort of a low enthusiasm election with incredibly high stakes. I'm so glad to hear you say that because I think there is this fantasy globally that undecideds are the most switched on voters. No. When actually all the data shows that they're the most checked out. Yeah. What I wanted to to ask was we know that there is a slice that is entrenched for either side, right? No one's going to shift them. Everyone is playing for that 4 5% that you were talking about. Um, are the issues, the election issues that will be decisive for them, the same as they are for the general population? I think so, because I think, one, it's not a stretch to say that the economy is going to be a big driving issue. And while Joe Biden has a story to tell that the economy here is actually doing quite well by certain metrics, by unemployment, wages have gone up. If you want a job, you can find one. The recovery from the pandemic has gone relatively smoothly. There's a lot of positive signs, but Americans right now are so uniquely down on the economy and largely on their own lives. And what we know is anecdotally, most people's relationship with the economy is the grocery store, the gas tank, and their mortgage or their house payments. And interest rates are up, grocery prices are up, gas prices are actually doing pretty good right now. Not much to complain about mm. in the U.S., but they feel down, that there's a real bleak feeling about the future of the country across generations right now. But the economy, certainly. The other issue that I think is percolating deeply inside American politics on both the state and federal level is abortion. The fallout from the 2022 Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade and federal access to abortion is still roiling states and localities and congressional races and Senate races all over this country. I don't think that the American people are done litigating what that decision meant and what they want it to mean for policy going mm, forward. Mm. And I would say uh, there is a, a vibe and a mood to this election about what should America be? What should America stand for? What does American democracy mean? Joe Biden is trying to make that sort of a central pillar of his campaign. And, and again, that's not a policy debate. That's not my, here's my 10 point agenda yeah, for yeah. what I'm going to do for democracy. That is a character debate. What, how do you want your president to act? What kind of power do you want him to have? And I think that as we get closer to the election, that crystallizes in people's minds a little bit more. I don't know if the average voter is thinking about that on a day-to-day -day basis, but 
it does matter. And I think because Donald Trump is running on such a clear agenda to remake American democracy as we know it today, to remake the American presidency as we know it today, that yeah. might become more something that ultimately that person that goes into the ballot and is like, mm, makes that gut decision. I think that that will have sort of a, a, a measure of effect on some element of the electorate and a critical element of the electorate. MSNBC had a poll. So asked about the economy in the abstract, 58% rated it as bad. 53% say they expect a recession. But when asked more personal sort of vibe questions, 63% said their job was secure and 68 that their own finances were good. <laughs> I guess the question is, why is there that gap? Why do so many Americans feel that the economy in general is doing so much worse than they experience personally? I don't know if this is a uniquely American phenomenon, but it is certainly um, a feature of American politics, because I would say you, you find the same dynamic when you poll people and say, how do you feel about Congress? Or how do you feel about, you know, something very broad? And they say, oh, hate those guys. They're terrible. I don't approve. <laughs> and then you say, well, what do, how do you feel about your congressman? And they're like, I like him. He's a good guy. So I think that there is like an abstract feeling that things aren't going well in the economy. But in reality, people can't pinpoint their own lives. They they feel pretty good. I do think that there is an element here. People, I think there's an equation for a lot of people. Of, when you ask them how the economy is doing, they think about the president. They think about the state of the country. Yeah, yeah. And one of the fundamental problems that Joe Biden has is his age. A, a big chunk of this country just thinks he is too feeble to be president. And so I think that some of those numbers reflect this sort of uneasiness about this person being the steward of the economy. I don't feel good about it. Okay, but how do you mm, feel about mm. your own life? I feel pretty good. So it sets a tone. Um, and there, frankly, there's nothing really Joe Biden can do about it. He has things he can point to that he's done for the economy that are good for the country, but he can't change his age. He can't make people feel more confident about that. I mean, he can certainly try and and, and he hasn't really fully started campaigning yet. You know, he still has a lot yeah, of yeah. campaign ahead of him. So he might be able to convince people of that, but he's got a Tall job to do. I mean, the, there was a national poll from ABC News out this week that showed Joe Biden with a 33% approval rating. That is a 15-year low. No president, not even Donald Trump in the mm. height of a lot of his own scandals and controversies was that low. The last time he was president, now it's just one poll, but consider this. The last time a U.S. president had an approval rating that low was George W. Bush from 2006 to 2008, which was the post, the Iraq war malaise and the uh, yeah. financial collapse. I mean, really bad numbers for a president. So as risky and as volatile as Donald Trump is, there is also an incumbent president who is running for re-election with extremely weak numbers and a lot of vulnerabilities on the campaign trail. So that adds this added element of volatility where I think there's a chunk of this electorate who thinks, oh, God, how could they elect Donald Trump again? And it's like, well, it's a binary choice yeah. at the end of the day. It's also not a national election. Remember this. It's not a popular vote election. We have a very prescriptive way that we elect our presidents. And it's really going to come down to about seven states. And I would argue even maybe four states. And if you go into that, it's maybe five counties. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can Donald Trump win Arizona, Georgia, and Pennsylvania? Yeah. And if he wins those states, he's the next president of the United States. Okay, okay. So so then this becomes a key issue because we say that the economy is uh, one of the top issues for voters, right? 
But then we see that gulf in the polling between how they feel about their finances versus how they feel about the economy in general. So which one is the one that they rate top? When they say they will vote depending on the economy, do they mean their personal finances or do they mean their perception of the economy in general? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I I think that would go down to where you get to the swing voter and the independent voter. And I think ultimately, if people feel pretty good about their own life, if they're, you know, they're getting, they have good wages, they have health care, another big component Mm. here, they feel good about retirement. You know, the median voter in this country still tends to be an older white voter who is thinking about things like retirement and financial security in a different way than maybe a 25 year old voter might. Um, if people feel ultimately pretty good about the economy, that is obviously going to be a good thing for Joe Biden. There is also this sense of uh, nostalgia for Trump in that people are like, well, I feel like I was doing better then. You know, they passed the Trump tax cuts mm-hmm. under him. Uh, my 401k was doing great. Not reflective of the fact that we had a global pandemic that came in and, you know, destroyed a lot of that and had a president that led them out of it. But there is a look back to say, does he win with that? Do people say, well, you know what, Joe Biden, he's old, he can't handle it. Uh, And my life was better under Donald Trump. If I could predict the future, I'd probably be somewhere beyond covering American politics. But Mm -hmm. that's the question, right? That is the question that's going to hang over this electorate or this election until November. So does that mean then that it's smart for Democrats to lean into culture war issues like abortion? Because I guess turnout will become so fundamental to which side does better that they need something to fire up their base. Yes. And it seems like Biden's biggest weapon is actually Trump. It's just to say, if you don't vote for me, you get that guy. Well, that's why you hear Joe Biden say all the time, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. I would say this, anger is the greatest motivator in American politics. I don't know if Joe Biden cares as much that you like him as much as you dislike Donald Trump so much you're going to show up and vote against him because an unenthusiastic vote counts just as much as an enthusiastic vote. Mm-hmm. And and you're right, this isn't going to be a persuasion election. This isn't about convincing vast numbers of people to vote one way or another. It's going to be about base turnout. It's going to be about getting out the people you know will likely vote for you. And this is where, you know, Donald Trump has problems with traditional Republican-based voters, college-educated voters, suburban voters. They've been really sour on Donald Trump. And for Democrats, black voters, Latino voters have been um, not necessarily fully disapproving of Biden, but really unenthusiastic. And Mm. parts of the electorate, especially in key places like the city of Philadelphia, I am a Philly girl originally, but, you know, the Philadelphia area, the Atlanta area where the black vote is so critical. Joe Biden won Georgia by, I think, just under three points, right? 11,000 votes. That's a, that is a narrow margin in a presidential race. So even moderate lack of enthusiasm among black voters in Georgia could cost him that state. So they need to figure out how to get those voters to show up at no matter what. Uh, And Donald Trump has also proven an ability to get people who didn't vote before, who didn't care about politics, who felt left out of the system to show up. And so his turnout is often can be a little bit harder to predict because it is much harder to um, forecast turnout if someone's showing up to vote in a presidential an election for the first time in their 30s. That is sort of the voter that's not as easily accounted for in American polling. Hmm. Can we talk a little bit about immigration? Because it's recently sort of blown up as a as an issue over there. Why are 
people crossing the border at the moment in such large numbers? And who are they? Like, what is their composition? Sure. This has been a problem for a year. I mean, immigration has been an unsolvable problem in American politics for the better part since basically the Reagan era was the last time that the U.S. has been able to pass comprehensive immigration legislation. And it has become one of the starkest dividing lines between the two parties in that it has become harder and harder to find any kind of bipartisan solution. In the current day, a lot of the uh, crossings at the border are driven by instability throughout Latin America, uh, governments uh, collapse and people, you know, seeking a better economic life because back home mm. has fallen apart. There's also a political element to this that I do think, and there is some acknowledgement of the fact that people thought it would be easier to get into the country under the Biden administration. You know, we, we are still a nation of laws. If they don't like immigration laws, then Congress has to change them. But under current asylum laws, people have a legal right to approach the U.S. border and ask for asylum. And they have been overwhelmed. But the current legal system allows people to try to do this. Now, there's also, of course, an element of illegal border crossings that has been true for the past 30 years in the U.S.-Mexico border. That's not a new dynamic. Um, but it has been peaked. I mean, there are, there are statistics of hundreds of thousands of crossings or attempted crossings. And the visuals of it, of often seeing streaming you know, caravans of people coming across the border, are very politically effective. It does not look like the United States is in control of its southern border, and that sparks fear in a significant amount of the country. And even among Democrats, you know, I would point to someone like John Fetterman, who is a Democrat senator from Pennsylvania, and more of a liberal Democrat in many of his ideas. And he sounds like a Republican these days talking about it. You know, mm. he says, it's not crazy to want a secure border. That does not make you some intolerant conservative. But getting there is almost impossible because, you know, in the current debate, do Republicans really want to give Joe Biden a major conservative border victory right now that would essentially inoculate him from their very effective political attacks going into re-election? And not only that, have them co-sign the legislation so they also take ownership of the problem. Or do they want the issue? Speaker Mike Johnson of the House has even indicated that if Donald Trump doesn't want this deal... Republicans in Congress aren't going to support it. He is the de facto nominee mm. of the party. Members don't want to be on the other side of him. So if he, even as a candidate, says, don't agree to anything, that's not going to go anywhere in this Congress. And I think that it is right to be pessimistic that the middle of a presidential election year is the time to find bipartisan agreement on an issue that no president has been able to do in nearly 40 years. I mean, I guess naively, from an outsider's point of view, it's surprising because if America is one thing, is it's a it's a country of immigrants. Sure. You know, um, can the Biden administration do anything? What is it doing? They, I mean, they can and they have, and they even have a pending request to Congress for billions more in money to supply border security agents for more judges along the border to sort of help process and speed up the existing legal process. They are currently trying to find a bipartisan agreement to address the sheer numbers of people of who can come in, can they stay, when do they have to go back, um, can they come in at all. But sometimes you can just tell by the pressure in the air of the political barometric pressure of whether this is going to happen or not. And I think there is cause to be really skeptical that Republicans see any political incentive 
to clinching a big bipartisan agreement right now. It is one of the most effective, they believe, lines of attack against the Democratic Party and Joe Biden. I think they see it critical to uh, winning congressional races, particularly in seats that are near the U.S. border, which, you know, immigration hits different if you're representing the Texas and Arizona borders versus if you're in Vermont and New Hampshire. Like, it's just not as clear a problem. Although I would say that that has become even less true. And in that um, Republican governors making a very political point to ship migrants to places like New York City or New Jersey or Chicago, Illinois. Tell me, tell me a bit more about that that practice of busing thousands of immigrants from border states to more northern states. When did that start to happen, and and what is its legal framework? Because it seems to me quite weird that one state could decide to send thousands of people to another state. Sure. I mean, from a tactical matter, it really happened during the Biden administration, particularly governors, Texas Governor Greg Abbott and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Part of it was just political. It was a little bit of a gotcha. At one point, um, Ron DeSantis and the state budgets would pay for this. You know, they would they would eat the cost of sending people to other places. But there was at one point, I believe it was over the summer, he sent a group of migrants to Martha's Vineyard, which is a very sort of um, people have probably heard of it, but it's a very Tony, a very elite vacation place in America. There's also been a very political point to send them to the city of Chicago, in which one Democratic strategist said to me that it seemed a pretty clear effort to have these sort of encampments there because that is where Democrats are going to have their political convention this summer. And the TV cameras will not be shy to find the camps of migrants around the convention site and what that means Mm. politically. And there has been a resistance at the federal level to deal with these issues. So the burden is left to states like Texas and Arizona and California, even Florida, to deal with these things. And they've taken a really aggressive political stance. Is it legal? Yeah. Again, if if people don't if people don't like the immigration laws, they have to change the laws. But they have been unable mm-hmm. to change the laws, so then they're going to have to deal with the politics. And Republicans are also trying to impeach uh, Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas over this. On on what grounds? That's a great question. There are there are legal scholars who would argue uh, <laughs> that there are no grounds. Um, I think the broad case for impeachment would be dereliction of duty, duty to the Constitution. And of course, there is an inherent implicit uh, duty in the Constitution to protect and serve the United States of America, and that this number of border crossings does not serve that purpose. The catch is you can't really impeach a cabinet secretary for enforcing the legal policies of a president just because you think they suck. Being bad at your job is not a basis for impeachment. And even Jonathan Turley, who is a constitutional scholar, he's featured heavily in impeachment debates going back to Bill Clinton, who has sided with Republicans often in a lot of these legal arguments, has been pretty explicit that he thinks that this is a baseless Mm. case for impeachment. And more importantly, senators who would be forced to decide ultimately the fate of anyone impeached by the House, Republican senators, um, will say, quite frankly, that they don't see that the case is there. But I think it's good base politics. I mean, again, the border and immigration and national security are core to Republican identity and Republican political messaging. So looking like you're the party that's fighting like hell to do everything you can to secure the border and go after anybody that doesn't think that they're doing a good enough job... I just think that's good politics for the base. I think the problem with impeachment now is it's happening at such a pace that it sort of loses its effect. It it does start to become meaning. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) 
After the Iowa result, Trump raved about hundreds and hundreds of known terrorists coming in and promised a deportation level that we haven't seen in this country since Eisenhower. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene is promising that Trump will deport millions on day one. I mean, how serious is this? I think serious. I would say that Donald Trump is a former president who is running on very clear policy ideas that should be taken seriously. And part of that is because he is running on a promise that he will appoint people to these positions of power that will do what he wants them to do. And Trump in the first administration, however one may feel about that, had a lot of gatekeepers. There were people that tried to uh, appeal to his better angels, to try to prevent his worst impulses. John Kelly, his chief of staff, Jim Mattis, his defense secretary, Rex Tillerson, his former secretary of state, even some members of his family like Ivanka and Jared. um, They're not going to be in a second administration. They're very clear about that. And so I think that Trump intends to appoint people to positions like Homeland Security Secretary Defense Department and other places that will be more willing to push the boundaries of what the law says you can do and much more willing to maybe even go beyond the law and say, let's fight it through the courts. So I think that when he says, if you elect me president, I will do everything to deport millions of people. I think that that is a policy that people should take very seriously. Whether the courts block him, whether there are things that get in the way that stop him from doing that, whether Congress passes new laws that says he can't, that I can't predict. But his intention to do it and his willingness to do it, I think, should be taken with absolute seriousness. Hmm. Um, let me take you out of the specific back into the general Um we get poll after poll that shows a big chunk of voters, almost the majority of voters, say none of the above. <laughs> um, in this kind of environment, might a third candidate make a big difference? And is there one that might? Well, I would say this. Uh, Democrats have reason to be terrified of a potential third party challenges on the ballot. Because of the last six presidential elections, two of them that had the highest third-party voter turnout were 2016 and 2000. Two very bad years for Democrats. So Mm. history would indicate that the larger the third-party vote share is, the worse that is for the Democratic Party. I think it depends on who and it depends on which states they're on the ballot. Um, Historically, the two parties that tend to get the most votes are the Green Party and the Libertarian Party. It's unclear exactly who the ultimate nominees might be for those, so that matters a lot. There isn't really a huge appetite in the American electorate for third-party voters. We're still pretty much a two-party system. But again, of the seven states that are going to decide this election that were decided by three points or less, a third-party candidate on any of those ballots could be a huge spoiler. Some caveats here. One of the ones that I think could potentially be a cause for concern, but this crosses party lines, is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. He started as a Democrat. He's now running as independent. Don't know which ballots he's going to be on, but there was a sense he could pull away from Biden. The Kennedy, obviously, a very uh, legacy family here. Mm. But he's more controversial. He certainly has a lot of controversial views about the use of vaccines and other sort of conspiratorial ideas that have actually shown that he might pull from the Republican base. Trump. Um, there's a liberal intellectual, Cornell West, who is African-American. He's running as an independent. If he's on the ballot in a state like Georgia and could draw a significant chunk of the black vote, that should scare the Biden campaign. Uh, and then there's this effort. It's a, sort of an amorphous effort right now called the No Labels Campaign, which is a new third party um, 
effort that they're trying to prop up. They've already gotten ballot access on 13 states. And they say that if it is ultimately a Biden-Trump election, that they're going to put forward what they're calling a unity ticket uh, sometime in the spring after Super Tuesday, which is March 5th. It looks like it's going to be a Trump-Biden election, so it looks like they're going to put someone up. And even as early as today, they held a press conference and said, for instance, if Nikki Haley doesn't win the nomination and bows out of the race, that she is someone that they would very seriously consider. They have mm, said that they would- That is interesting. They said that they would consider um, a bipartisan ticket. So like a Republican presidential candidate running on a ticket with a Democratic vice presidential candidate. Whoever that is will not be the next president of the United States. But can they create havoc in the election? Yes. And that havoc mm. is more likely- to hurt Joe Biden than Donald Trump because a unity ticket would more likely pull from independents, centrists, disaffected liberals. You know, it, it, it just shows that the drag is more on Biden than on Trump in that scenario. Okay. Let me ask you one final question, Susan, about the House and Senate races, because they're getting very little attention. Yeah. And given what we were talking about, about, you know, Trump unchained effectively. Um, this time with no gatekeepers and being able to appoint whoever he wants. Um, And given how rare split tickets are, would Trump winning big means he just controls everything? He takes the Senate, the House, he's got the Supreme Court at the moment. And how bad could it get? That is certainly possible. I think in a world in which Donald Trump is winning it's almost certain that they, the party has taken the Senate. And to be clear, Republicans could take the Senate even under a Joe Biden victory because of the number of states that are up this time around. A Republican-controlled Washington under Donald Trump would be probably a fairly chaotic force for this. I think it is only a matter of time before the Senate gets rid of the filibuster, which is the standard by which any major legislation needs to get a supermajority or 60 votes to move forward on legislation. Democrats are basically all on record saying they want to scrap it entirely. And if Democrats control the Senate in the next Congress, I think it's very possible they might do that because the opponents to the filibuster may no longer be in the Senate. A, A Washington without a filibuster under one party control would basically mean that the party could do anything they wanted as long as they had 50 senators to agree to it. And what we have seen, especially in Donald Trump's Republican Party, that there's no real opposition to Donald Trump. (laughs) Mitt Romney's leaving. You know, Mitch McConnell's days in office are numbered. Like the the Republicans that are left in Congress are the most loyal Republicans to the president. He has fully remade the party in his image. So his ability to move forward on legislation would probably be fairly unimpeded. And that's a pretty powerful thing. The last most productive legislative period in Washington was under Barack Obama's uh, first term in office when he had super majorities in the House and Senate. And that's when they passed the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. That's when they did Dodd-Frank, Wall Street regulation. Like One party without uh, voting limits can do very impactful legislation. And most members of Congress right now have served since that era, so they don't know what that feels like. (laughs) And yeah, so I I think on the issues of culture war issues, things like abortion rights, there is Republican legislation to have a federal abortion ban at 15 weeks. They could arguably have the votes to do that. Immigration, would there would be a huge amount of pressure to do very conservative immigration laws. Um, you know, you already had the Trump tax cut. So I do think a lot of the it's it's hard to cut taxes even further in this country, although I'm sure there would be some effort to do that. 
Mm. And frankly, uh, revenge. <laughs> I mean, Donald yeah. Trump, when you talk about leadership and what that would mean, he is very clearly saying that he would like to use the power that he has to go after his perceived political enemies. And that could create any amount of legal and political chaos in this country for, for sure. Susan Davis, thank you uh, for a wonderful, if slightly depressing conversation. <laughs> That's thank what I'm here for. <laughs> Uh, let me take this opportunity to repeat my recommendation for the NPR Politics Podcast. I, I re especially your shorts, your like 15-minute um, explainers of things. I find them just invaluable. Um, we will drop a link in the show notes for listeners. Remember, if you get value from our work, you should support our work. And you can do so from as little as £3 a month on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. I leave you with the words of that perennial wit, H.L. Mencken. Democracy is the theory that the people know what they want and deserve to get it good and hard. This is Alex Andreo in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker was written and presented by Alex Andreo, produced by Chris Jones. Audio productions from me, Robin Lieber. Our art is by Jim Parrott. Socials by Jess Harpin. And music by Kenny Dickinson. Managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. Group editor, Andrew Harrison. And The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>